it is good to be here with you today. How many of y'all had a copy of the article from last week? Yeah. And how many read it? All right. Okay. I want to... Beth, did you want to teach? I've known Beth a long time. That was very rude of me, but I've known Beth a long time. I'm sorry. Okay. Let's open with a word of prayer just really briefly, you guys. Gracious God, come Holy Spirit. Help us to um, open our hearts and our minds to you that you might enliven our souls. Um, teach us during this time so that we may know you in your son, Jesus Christ, and live. These things we pray in his holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the series, this is the second Sunday in a series um, of, where's the chair? Um, this is the second Sunday in a series of four, and I'm talking about creation, the early stages of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. Talked about it a little bit last time. And um, the series is entitled the mind of Christ, because I think that if we want to understand, if we want to be Christian, if we want to be faithful, if we want to live as disciples, we must understand how God views his creation. So that's why we're looking at Genesis and talking about the mind of Christ, right? Because Christ pre-existed as the son from all time. He is always the son. So there's not anything that occurs in Genesis for which Christ is not present. The man Jesus was not born for a long time, but the son of God was present at creation and before. I mean, that's the nature of the triune God. So anyway, our, our verse, uh, the passage that I'm using um, is from Paul's letter to Corinth. All right. The, this is the main passage for the whole four Sundays. And it is the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, that is the, that is the passage that we're using. And I want us to bear in mind that when we talk about a natural person, and we say there's, there's a contrast between natural and spiritual in this text. And the reason that's significant is because, I mean, it's very simple. Uh, natural is how we are now, natural. This is what we are naturally in this world that we can see, that we can touch, that we can feel. What is natural to us, okay? It is natural to us to be um, selfish. Any of y'all selfish? Yes, I can promise you, you are. I am very selfish, okay? But, but that, is the, that is the essence of human life, right? That we are, okay? How many of you gossip as a pastor? I will tell you that gossip is probably the single most destructive force in the life of the church. Okay. But it happens and people do it all the time. It's the prayer chain. We're sharing it with everybody. <laughs> you know, and you're going, this, you're not helping anything. You're making people miserable. But I mean, the, but I'm not saying all prayer chains are that way. I'm saying that is an experience. Gossip is very destructive and it, and it harms and hurts people. So anyway, my point is that to be natural, all these things come naturally to us. My favorite illustration of what is natural is lying, right? How many of you taught your children or grandchildren how to lie? It came spontaneously, long about two. Did you break that? No. 
I'm right there. I don't know. I didn't do that. You know, I, and, you know, and did, did you lie to your child? No, you didn't, you didn't lie to your child. Right. But anyway, your child just spontaneously. No, uh -uh. I knew instinctively. I didn't know. No, I didn't draw that ladder on the wall. I can remember my mother looking at my brother saying, did you draw the ladder on the wall? And he and I had been trying to climb it. And, and, you know, <laughs> and did you draw the ladder on the wall? My brother said, no, I didn't. And I thought she'll believe him because I believe everything he says. <laughs> he was 18 months older than I am. Okay. That's what it means to be natural. To be spiritual is to participate in the kingdom of God. That is what is so important. To be spiritual is to participate in the kingdom of God. And when we look at, say, the creed, it said God created all that is seen and unseen. That means there's an entire unseen world. So when we talk about having the mind of Christ, what we're going to talk about in part today includes the issue of like, what do I say, the issue of the unseen world beyond us, okay, that which is going on around us all the time that we don't take seriously, very seriously as Christians, and certainly the natural world around us does not take it seriously at all, all right, and we need to reawaken to the reality of the spiritual forces around us, both good and evil. So when we read that we're going to have the mind of Christ, we want our thoughts to be like Christ, our mind to be as his is, okay, which is both, both in the natural world and in the spiritual world. I mean, he was incarnate, so he understands the natural world, right? So, you know, um, the mind is more than just thoughts. It is your thoughts and your will. Do you will to do as Christ does? Do you will to think as Christ would? You know, I will, for example... I am will to be four inches taller. It doesn't change reality, but I will it. Okay. What do you will? What do you want? What do you, what do you determine to do? How many of y'all make up your mind you're going to lose 10 pounds? And you will to do that. And then you eat certain things and you do that. And you have the will to accomplish these things. Right? Yeah. Now, I don't do that. I'm not going to even lie. Okay. I mean, you know, I just got to No, I don't see any point in doing that. So I need my ear in here. So anyway, um, all right. When we talked last week, we talked about Christians as um, that is the Christian's task to see and to understand the world as God does. He's revealed himself in scriptures. He revealed himself foremost in Jesus Christ. All right. He reveals himself now in the spirit that's poured out across the earth. I mean, he reveals himself in the truth. Okay. All those different. There, there are lots of ways that God reveals himself to us. Right. But anyway, that's what we talked about. But we talked about what it is to be created. OK, because being a creature is different from being um, self-created. Right. And that's what our society is about right now. Everything in society is about creating your own identity and your own self. I am going to create me. Right. And um, but a Christian cannot think that because you are created by God. Right? He created and formed the earth and all that is in it. And that includes you. The scriptures are very clear that he knew us before we were born. You know, that he shaped and formed us in the womb. We are truly uh, one, fearfully and wonderfully made. Right. And we didn't do that ourselves. You know, um, to take this view in our society today is to be entirely different from the world around us, from the culture in which we live. All right. It is to be entirely different. Because we all, in this culture, we have tremendous, a tremendous sense that we can create ourselves as we wish to be. And um, you cannot. 
Remember? I mean, you, you, there's not, it's not possible. I can't make myself, what was the illustration last week? When, when I was six, I wanted to be Cinderella. Okay. I can't make myself Cinderella. Okay. I can't even change the color of my eyes. And I'm completely fascinated with this notion that we're going to create ourselves from new from nowhere and um, just be whatever we want to be. And I think that's terrifying. You know, but when we take this view, we're going to be in contrast to the culture. You get, so I think that the issue and this is why I'm, this is why I, the whole point of this series, the issue is going to be, are you going to choose to be Christian or are you going to choose to be in the culture? Because the time is the time is rapidly passing that you can continue to have civil religion. And that's important for the article that we're about to discuss. All right. Um, it, you know, I think it's I think, you know, it's interesting when we are talking about comments that we read. How many people in the public square think that Christians are crazy? Right. And I think that's a great lead in. I think people lack sufficient understanding of what Christianity is that they um, that they, uh, you know, that. Okay, I'm sure I can put together a whole sentence. Give me a second, okay? People lack a Chris, an understanding of what Christianity is, but they also lack an understanding of their own self-awareness, an awareness of themselves. And I think we Christians are just as guilty of that as well, that we are steeped in a culture and we've quit thinking for ourselves and we take on assumptions that belong into the culture. And it's so that's a bias that is so deeply ingrained in our culture that is ingrained in the way we live out our faith, right? And I want to tell you that those are ultimately not going to be compatible. Let's take a look at the article real quick. All right. I want you to tell me what you pulled out of it first. And I want to spend no more than 10 minutes on this. Okay. Tell me what you pulled out of it. What'd you read and see? First thing that drew your attention. What's true? What in the Christian nationalism. Christian That is a very hard question to answer. We're going to say the very end, but hold that. That is the important question at the end. All right. What else? The way they were identifying Christians. Right. I agree. The way that Christians are identified. What was it you didn't like or did like? People are non-Christians. It scare them and make them fear Christians. Yes, the point of the article was to um, scare people and to make them not want to be Christians or not or to be against Christianity. That's what John said. Right. Okay. Did y'all hear what he said? Um, that that they lumped together, the author lumped together all sorts of different kinds of Christianity as one version of Christianity, and some of those were false. And, and there isn't just one version of Christianity. Actually, that's not true. There is only one version of Christianity. However, we are all struggling to get to it fully. There's nothing Christian about Christian nationality. There's nothing Christian about Christian nationality. Nationalism. Nothing Christian about Christian nationalism. Is that true?
Okay. Okay. He says we're founded on Judeo-Christian uh, principles. And she said that we are, um, that the Judeo-Christian principles do unto others as you have them do unto you. That is, both of those statements are partially true. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. I want to, I'm going to do you have a comment? Please throw one out there. It's all it's so much That is very important. There's a great catch, y'all. Okay. He goes from, you know, Putin is the hero of God. Well, that's so much more. I think he's impressed with his own vocabulary. He uses words that, what's that word I looked at? Um, I don't know. The way Christians for interracial marriage, interracial adoptions, uh, homophobe. That means you don't like women. No. <laughs> uh, so I, I didn't like the guy, and I didn't find much. I argued with myself about what was true and what was not true. Uh, but then maybe this, this could be studied in a, in a Four week but, um, um, okay, so what he's pointed out here is the guys from Singapore, I think it's female, but I could be mistaken. I meant to look it up to verify that, but I think it was a female that wrote it. It says he, my bad, you're right, I'm wrong. It's, it's happened before, go for it. So anyway, um, but I mean, so his the point being that this the man who wrote this article, right, is identifying all these trends in Christianity, lives in Singapore, goes across the world and picks up ideas out of Christianity, right? And then he lumps them all together, as, as Mr. Barry said, and then um, says that Christian nationalism is very, very dangerous, right? And I want to say to you, first of all, that I think the person is dangerously undereducated. I mean, he is dangerously mistaken about the nature of religion altogether, all right? I don't know what he's, what would he choose to be um, the optimal way to form or order a society, but human beings are by nature religious. And the reason I wanted you to read this article is because I think that this is the way that people understand Christianity in the public square today. And it's very important to grasp that because if they believe that all Christians are patriarchal, misogynistic, okay, if they, if if Christianity holds that, um, you know, that men are dominant and should should rule over women, if Christianity holds that women are lesser creatures and it's okay to hate women, all right. If Christianity holds, for example, let me see what the other choice is, uh, racist, right? So um, authoritarian, misogynistic, homophobic, violent views. And that's just in the second paragraph that I pulled out. May third paragraph, whatever. Um, they oppose interracial marriage, transracial adoption, gender parity, voter suppression methods, measures, and risky COVID-related behaviors. Now, what I want you to understand that every one of those things that is named in that article are values in our society today. 
All right. Values in our society today. When it says patriarchy, right, that, you know, then you automatically go, oh, bad man ruling over women. It's really bad. Okay. And I want to say to you, having served as a pastor under men and under women, that matriarchy is a witch. And I would not like that. Okay. They are brutal. And there is no, I've had female bosses, you know, at a district level, conference level, and I've had male bosses. And a lot of them I didn't respect, but none were more brutal than the women. Do you know that studies have been done on children and on bullies? Because bullying is a big issue. We don't want to bully anymore, right? But studies have been done on children, on bullies. Little boys, there's a profile for a bully among boys, right? And that profile is pretty standard across the board, across cultures, across everywhere. A little boy that is a bully is someone who wants attention, is probably marginalized by both um, socioeconomic or maybe intellectual qualities so that he's, he doesn't fit in. He's bigger. He finds somebody smaller than himself to pick on, and he picks incessantly. Do you know who the bullies are in the women among the girls? They're the most popular girls in the room. And look at the women nodding. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I've been there. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, they pick out, right? They pick out that you're going to be invited and you're not. I am the queen and I'm the, I've got everything and I get to choose who my subjects are going to be. Y'all remember that from high school? Look at the women going, yeah, I got that. Exactly. I mean, so, so, I mean, my point is not to say that, you know, I'm for patriarchy, but I want to say your other choice there isn't necessarily better. All right. Human affairs are very messy. And there is no doubt at all that Christianity holds the primacy of the male in terms of laying down his life. And if you search or if you study the scriptures to understand the relationship between male and female, you have a com competition for power on both parts. And God is saying that's not going to be the case. You need to lay down your life for her and she needs to respect you. OK, that's a long way from Genesis. And we're not talking about marriage today. But I want to say to you that patriarchy and matriarchy are not necessarily Christian. But to appreciate men in our culture today is not a virtue. OK, and especially Christian white men. All right. I'm not going to stand up and defend Christian white men. I'm going to stand up and defend Christian faith. And if you want to live that faithfully and you want to be a man of God, then I will support you all the way. If you want to stand up and say, I'm a man, I will say, congratulations. What do you want? There you go. That's all you got. That's what I'm giving you. You're a man. Okay. So anyway, but if you're going to stand up for the gospel, then you have my, you have my respect. You have my, I will give you your due. Right. Because that's what matters in the end is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. <clears throat> Other things that we talked about, let me see in the article itself. Um, They've decided on the racial issues. How many people realize that nobody who came up with Christianity was white? Do y'all know that? I mean, all the white people were up there in the north wearing, you know, painting themselves blue and running around naked. I mean, it's not. They were not Christians. The Christians were the, they came out of the Middle East. Have you looked at them? They look kind of white. It's not, it's not, it's not a racial issue. Christianity is spread across the culture everywhere. Across the, across the world, across the nation, right? I mean, across the country. It's lived in every century, right? In every language. It's astonishing, right? Um, what I think of the, the authoritarian, yes. Let me, let me be clear. There is a God. He has set the rules and we are called to be obedient. Isn't that what Bert said this morning in the sermon? We are called to be obedient and you do not get to create your own future. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, that entails following 
it is authoritarian in nature because God rules. I'm not talking about the Pope. I'm talking about the, the authority of God over our lives. The authority of Jesus Christ who hung on the cross and said to you, follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. And yes, it is authoritarian. You see, what we're doing is I want to take these definitions and say, you don't like them in the cultural sense, right? Not, not you personally. But this article is pointing out all these flaws. And I want to say, this is God's ordained order in his creation. This is how he intended us to live and to thrive, right? And some of these are just completely false. Why do you have violent views? I was talking to Steve Reeves about this. Are you listening, Steve? I'm talking about you. Anyway, um, I was listening. I mean, we were talking about this. In the old days, well, they, they kept a gun. Why did they keep a gun? Why do men have guns all the time? It was able to provide food, right? But the truth of the matter is that they needed to protect their family. All right? That's why they had guns, to protect their family. Today, you need to take care of your family. Do you have a security system? Do you have good health insurance? Can you provide for your family to eat? It still remains your responsibility. Is it violent to acknowledge there are sinful people out there? And apparently in America today, it is, it is, it is wrong. You cannot say people are sinful and therefore we must protect ourselves. That's a violent view. Oh, I'm sorry, while you rape and pillage and murder, we are not to like respond and say, I will protect my child at all costs. Are Christians violent? Some are. And if you're violent in the name of Jesus, you know, Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's never been a century in which people didn't war with one another. What I want you to grasp is that our culture is making a mockery of Christianity and its understanding and its description. And they're not even intelligent enough to be able to look into it truly. At the same time, you, Christian, need to make sure you don't buy into any of the cultural things, the definitions that are applied to you, because they, you follow a God who was crucified. If, you're, if you fit easily into this world without any challenges, you may not really be following the God who was crucified. I think that's important for us to grasp, okay? Um, what else are we seeing here? I don't know, voter suppression measures. You know, because heaven forbid that we think all people are perfectly capable of getting an ID. You know, what, my, my point isn't the whole article. My point is that I want you to see that this is how Christianity is perceived. This is ABC. ABC, that's a pretty big name that's completely irrelevant now. But anyway. Can we show hands in here? So anyone in here wants to suppress voters? Anybody against interracial? I don't know. There's got to be one of them. Uh, there, I'm sure, I'm confident there are people out there who are against interracial marriage. I can't, I don't know any. I think it is, I think that human beings are made in the image of God. And I think we ought to like go with that. You're looking for like, just like I said before, you're looking for people who represent Jesus Christ and speak truly of him. Okay. You're, you're looking for people you can respect and trust and honor as a Christian. You're not looking for skin color. Okay. And if you are, you need to repent because you want to be around people who know God. You want to be around, be around people. You want your children or your grandchildren to marry people, right? Who are godly, who are prepared to lay down their lives for one another. For that is what it means to be married in Christian life. Now, then I want to go to the issue that we talked about earlier about Judeo-Christian values. This is really quick because I am not interested in a political discussion at all. I want you, the reason we're doing this is I want you to be aware you are living in a culture that is increasingly hostile toward Christians. All right. But 
Here's one, John Adams. The Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. No, I don't know how to do that, really. I don't know how to do that. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't know how to do that. You had me make it for you. Come on. I know you made it, but I'm just saying. Okay. I don't know where it is. It's on his computer. When I read that verse, I thought, I don't know where it is. <coughs> okay. Just hit. Do you want that? John Adams? There you go. John Adams. I can do that now. Okay, just press enter. I didn't tell you when to do it. So um, I met with John Winters on technological issues. We're giving him a crash course on reality here. So. <laughs> yeah. The Declaration of Independence laid the, is laid, laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. All right. Now then, I hit enter. It is impossible, this is George Washington, it is impossible to govern the world without God. It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly implore his protection and favor. Okay. Let's be clear. I read one article. This is years ago. Said, you know, they weren't even a member of a church here in the United States. And I was like, that's because they were Anglican from over there. Okay. I mean, you know, and I think George Washington was an Episcopalian. It's not like you can look at the time of the founders and say, oh, let's just transpose that on top of today. You know, today's what we have today, a church on every corner and say, oh, this is how it was. No, it was very different, but um, not entirely, but it was different. Okay, James Madison. The future and success of America is not in this constitution, but in the laws of God upon which this constitution is founded. Okay, Thomas Jefferson. Now he is a famous deist. Everybody likes to say Thomas Jefferson didn't believe in Jesus. He was a deist. And to some extent that is absolutely accurate. He was a deist. He did not believe in the supernatural works of Jesus entirely. But look at what he said. Of all the systems of morality, ancient or modern, which have come under my observation, none appears to me so pure as that of Jesus. I am a real Christian, that is to say, a disciple of the doctrine of Jesus. How many of y'all knew that? You always hear he's, he's, a, he's a deist, right? Right there. Now, I did bring Ben Franklin in this because he is an adamant deist. He was totally, I'm not doing that Jesus stuff at all. Ben Franklin was clear about that. But look at what he did say. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable surface we render him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. Okay. And Ben Franklin really did not believe in, in Christianity the way, say, George Washington did. or anything. I just throw those out there because I want you to see those when people say, no, 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 no. And separation of churches and state, that's a good idea. We're for that. Because in what do they have in Europe, they have a state church that was funded. I mean, they had the church was funded by the state. And the U.S. government said, we're not going to do that. 
You want to be Christian, be Christian on your own. We admire and respect. Why do we have all nonprofit in Christianity? I mean, in the church, in the United States, because the founding documents supporting religious belief entirely, right? But instead, you know, so when we, when, but the separation of church and state is that the church is not going to fund a, a state. I mean, the state is not going to fund a state church like the Church of England or the Church of Ireland or the Church of, you know, Wales or whatever. You know, Wales is England now. But anyway, neither here nor there. Whatever. I mean, you know. So anyway. Now then, on the next one, I want, after Ben Franklin, this, this is, um, how, if y'all don't know Alexis de Tocqueville, he, he traveled here in the 19th century, and he was one of the most, he wrote Democracy in America, one of the most interesting characters ever. He's very insightful, probably because he was riding around and taking a look at it, but he was a Frenchman. And he said, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. Okay, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And that was an observation from an outsider, and he was very clear on, on you know, what would happen if you move away from the religious fervor in the United States. Now then, let's return to the question of whether or not we should have um, whether or not we should have Christian nationalism. And I would say to you, the answer to that largely is no, okay? Not because I do not think that that is the best way to order a society, okay? But because you cannot force people to be Christian. But you can be Christian yourself. You can vote for people who uphold Christianity. And I want you to realize that above all else, this is the most important thing for us to understand. Above all else, there are three choices for the future of any nation in our world today, contemporarily. One of those is to be Christian. The other, the next one, is to be Islamic. Because you'll note this person doesn't mean to, I mean, poor, those poor Muslims, they, we, the Christians have been awful to those Muslims. Y'all know any data about what's done to Christians around the world today? Our third choice is going to be communism. That's it. Those are the three choices. And people say, oh, no, no, I'm for I'm for, I'm for socialism. Socialism is only soft communism. Once you allow somebody else to control the means of production, I'm not telling you the right answer. I think it is a complex question. And I think you need to be focused on whether or not you are fully committed to the gospel yourself. I am not fixing to answer how to go about, you know, living, um, how, to, how to create a government. I think the one they had was plenty good. But the Christians married the church to the culture. And we find ourselves today in a situation going, I don't know how to be Christian. What is Christian? Is it just Christian that we all love one another and treat one another fine? Most Christian is to follow Jesus to the cross and to die to self, to be raised with him. So I don't want to get into politics. I'm not smart enough to answer that question. I don't know the best way to order it. But I do know that if you look at the nation, there are only three choices at any, at any nation. I mean, you can look at India, but India has a caste system. There, you know, um, Hinduism is not fixing to take over the world. They're not going to let people move up from one caste to the next. So they're not fixing to take another nation. I mean, do you want, say, Xi Jinping for your next leader? I believe he's applying for the job. Every Christian I've ever known has lived it flawfully. Flaw, flaw. How do you say that word? Say somebody say the word. 
Flawed, thank you, has lived a flawed Christianity. Every Christian I have ever known, because none of you are Jesus, and I know I'm not. Okay? So every one of us live a flawed Christianity. Now, do you want to live a flawed Christianity, a flawed Islam, or a flawed communism? Okay. The purpose of this exercise is to, one, to make you see the opinion of Christianity in the public square. Because if you read articles outside of the church, that's what you'll find. And the second is to help you separate from the public square in your own self-understanding as a Christian. All right? Christianity and the culture have been so um, closely aligned that I don't think many of us realize. The, well, I can't get this to turn. I don't know what I was going to say next. I forgot my thought. And too many Christians accept the ideas of the culture because everybody says they're smart. Kind of like this guy was smart in the article that he wrote. Is that smart? No. We're biased. Everybody has a bias. I think we ought to be honest about that. He's biased against Christianity. He's for whatever it is he's for in Singapore, right? But the least he could do is get the facts right, you know? What's the most dangerous, what is the most dangerous system in the United States today? I mean, not in the United States, in the world today. What's the most dangerous system? Most deadly, since we're talking about that. What's the most deadly? Anybody know? Yes, no, not Islam. Communism. An estimated over 100 million people died last, in the last century by communism. All right. When I tell you that socialism is soft communism, I mean that when they, when, when we say shut down the fossil use of fossil fuels, and we all gripe about the price of gas, but we can still buy gas. They anticipate that as fossil fuels increase, that I mean, as the decrease in usage and green energy increases, they estimate a billion people around the world will die of starvation in the next few years. A billion people. So I want to say to you, when you hear how bad Christianity is, I want you to consider the alternative, right? And then you need to live faithfully in everything that you do. Because as the world becomes more desperate and as people fall apart more, as, as the situation becomes more um, volatile, the people who are at peace, who are joyful, the people who serve others, who love, the people who are kind and who have hope in the face of despair, these are the people that are going to be a light on the hill. And that is you. That is who the Christian community is supposed to be. And we would never want to forfeit that so we can get along with the world. Ever. You want to follow behind Jesus. It's a, it's a rough road to go. But it's the only way to life. It's the only way to life. C.S. Lewis made a comment, and I think it's important for us to remember and take it home, post on the wall. Christianity, if it is false, is of no importance at all. And if it is true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is modest, moderately important. And see, most of us have lived Christianity as moderately important. We live here, we make a good living, we provide for our family, we enjoy, I don't know, the country club or whatever it is we do all the time, playing golf, you know, or whatever. And then we go to church on Sundays. Christianity is moderately important. Pay our taxes. We're good Christians. We're good citizens. We go to church regularly. Give money to the church, right? That's moderately important. Okay? For it to be infinitely important, it has to be completely outwardly focused. 
What is good? What is good for the people around you? What glorifies Jesus Christ every day when you wake up? You know, what glorifies Jesus Christ today? What does Jesus Christ want from me today? How can I serve? Not that I'm that good. I think we ought to clarify that I'm not. But I shoot for that at least like three days a month. Okay, just something. The reason that C.S. Lewis made that point and why it's so important for us today to hear that point is that Christianity is what it is. Right? He says it's either this Christianity is either of no importance or it's infinitely important, right? Or it's not important at all. He assumes that Christianity is a specific thing. It's the same thing I said last week. It is a specific set of beliefs based on historical events in history, right? And, you know, and it is what it is. And we do not, we have not been given the right to change it. I, you're, I can promise you there's not a scientist on earth or a philosopher anywhere that's existed at any time that is smarter than God. Not. Okay. All right. If you don't agree with Christianity, then I recommend that you leave. I mean, don't be a Christian. If you don't like it, don't be it. Go do something else. You don't have to be Christian. You can be anything you want in the United States. This is America. You're still free for the moment. Okay. But I would say to you that right here, you don't, you don't have the right to try and change Christianity to suit yourself. All right. But, okay, but they can't try to do that unless we have acquiesced far long ago, a long time ago. When we married Christianity and culture, I think, like, if you look at the 50s, 60s, right in there, did you know that when they, when, when Methodism came over, a quarter of the churches in the United States before they were, the United States, when they were colonies, were Methodist? You know, I mean, that they were kind of like, excitable. We let that part go, because we're all educated. Don't get overexcited about Jesus now. Don't be jumping around. I'm all over that. I'm not a jumper, okay? No. But that doesn't mean the spirit doesn't work that way. He works that way in some people's lives. So if you, if we're all going to pick and choose what Christianity is, you know, the, the descriptions from all over the world, we said there's different versions of Christianity. Okay, if we're all going to pick and choose, that's what it's going to look like. We can use it to justify violence. We can use it to justify purging other people. We can use it to justify dominating women. We can use it to justify... Anything you want, I guess. I remember about, I don't know, 40 years ago, 35 years ago, I heard this. I was young and stupid, so I was listening to this Shirley MacLaine thing, and she was talking about the all the stuff that was going on, and she quoted scripture, and I thought, okay, that's a step too far. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't real devout or anything at 25 or 30, but I was I went 25, but I was like, no, I don't think the Bible was saying that. No, I don't think so. But anyway, so... Shirley MacLaine, and she was, you know, visiting from outer space in Ezekiel or something. I thought, <laughs> you're heading toward the point where you're going to have to choose. I think this is very important for us to understand, for us to understand in terms of um, a, a good friend of mine died this year, Jim, um, his name's Jim, and uh, he had seven grandchildren. And he said, what am I going to do if one of them comes to me, because he's a very traditional Christian. If one of them comes to me and says, will you do my wedding to my, you know, same sex, you know, lover or whatever, what are you going to do? Because he, he's a pastor. He could do that. Right. I mean, legally, he could do that. He, right now, you can't do it in the United Methodist Church. It doesn't matter. He died of lung cancer. OK, but the point is, 
that it was like this trauma. How would I alienate my child, my grandchild, whom I adore? See, every one of us are going to be faced with these questions. What are you going to live? How are you going to live? What are you going to do? What are you going to choose? I'm not answering the question for you. I'm saying this is what Christianity is, and it's a take it or leave it proposition. You may not alter it. Okay? Not fundamentally. And our, our, our generation is so, not, not us, this generation, I'm talking about this time period, is so unbelievably arrogant at such a high level of ignorance. It is mind-boggling to me. I mean, I don't, I don't get how people can believe it. I, I was reading, it wasn't supposed to be, what well, was supposed to be funny, and I was laying on the ground laughing. But there's this guy who is playing a little video of this woman, a young woman, she appeared to be between 22 and 25, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, the older I get, the babyer they are. But um, anyway, she was explaining her different meows, okay, based on her mood, because she's a furry. How many of y'all familiar with furries? <laughs> so this guy was hilarious. He never said a word. She would say, when I want to be petted, I say, meow, or whatever. And the guy's face was going. <laughs> he just showed his face in response to her. And I was laughing out loud. But my comment about her is I want you to imagine the creativity God gave her to imagine that world, her ability to create something different and new and artful and beautiful. And it is used for her self-destruction, not to be fully alive, to pretend she's a cat instead of, you know, I think that's a huge gift of creativity to be able to think of things like that. I, am, I got the creativity of a slug. I think we ought to be honest. I can draw stick figures on a good day, you know. My, my, my point is not that, that she's not gifted. It's that her gifts are leading to her destruction. She thinks she's a cat inside herself. I identify, I'm a cat. No, you're not. You're made in the image of God. You're blessed beyond your, your value of, of, of infinite value. You're blessed beyond measure. Look at your gifts and your talents, your creativity. Quit meowing. <laughs> We're not a cat. Remember, I was reading from Romans last week that we worship the creature rather than the creator. Can you imagine the image of God? It's bad enough when we worship ourselves. But who worshiped cats? Wasn't it the Egyptians? And they mummified cats and had them everywhere? They're cats. I have a dog. I still don't worship him. Okay. Cats kind of invite worship. They think they're so superior, you know. But anyway, the great challenge I think that we all have to face is that, you know, that people are, are, are religious irrespective, and few people are more religious than those who are actively evangelizing for atheism, people like Richard Dawkins. And they say, oh, humanism is a great idea. What did I tell you last week? Humanism is a horrible idea. All right. You can love humanity and not care at all about human beings. See, you can love humanity enough to save the planet while you starve a billion people. I want you to understand that contrast right there. God forbid we know what we're talking about. That's what humanism is. And the idea of the value of a human comes solely out of Christianity. 
solely. Your main name is of God. He, Christ died for you. That's where you get the whole idea of human beings are valuable. And you can take, you can take away. There's another quote that I had in there from, it's not in here, but it was from, um, it was from the, the Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville. And he said, morality, okay, um, is necessary for uh, society or something, you know, but, and that morality comes from faith, you know, it's religious by nature. So if your religion is atheism, how much do you care about human beings? When was the last time Richard Dawkins built a, 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 a you know, ramp, as Bert was saying in church this morning? We're talking about death, and I know that's what I said I was going to talk about. It's taking me a long time to get here. I don't know what time it is. But anyway. And was, you know, um, when we look at Genesis 3 in a minute, we're not going to talk about sin yet. We're going to talk about death. All right. But I want to start with an unexpected passage. So when they had come together, okay. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, what are you doing why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And I start with that because that's the end of the story. You need to know where to aim your life. If you have no hope of an afterlife, which is what, where we are in current society, no hope of an afterlife at all, right? If you have no expectation of anything beyond here, then this moment takes on just an urgency and a critical importance beyond all proportion. You must have everything that you want, every need satisfied, everything, because this is all you've got this moment. And I want you to think about the absurdity. Think of when you were 20, what you wanted. Think of when you were 40 and what you wanted. And then think of when you were 60 and what you wanted. As if there's no change. Every moment is intense. Remember I said the burden of trying to have your own identity, create your own life, create your own meaning and purpose is an enormous burden on society. And it is very destructive. It is too weighty for us to carry. So we want to start with the destination. What fascinates me about the ascension is that the body left. Jesus didn't just ascend, you know, the son of God go back up into heaven someplace. He took his body and left. So whatever we think we know, all the knowledge that we have, right? Everything, all of our science, all of our medicine, all of our understanding, all that stuff. Doesn't account for where the body is, does it? Where'd that body go? Because that world is real. This one will die. Anybody know anybody who does not die in this world? Besides Jesus, you know, I mean, the story is none of us get out of this alive. I think that's a proven fact, pretty much. In fact, that was David Hume's argument, for example. Anybody ever see a resurrection? No. How could that be real? You know? 
because you only need one to establish that there's a world beyond this one. And you want to live for that one. I say that you have to choose whether or not you want to. But if you're a Christian, you must live for that world. Because that's eternal. You know, your body's going to put on imperishability. You're going to put on immortality. You know, I love C.S. Lewis's quote on the weight of glory where he says, you've never met an average person ever. They are either destined to be glorious such that you would want to fall down and worship them or a demon from hell that would terrify you in the way of glory. He tells you that. And I think that is so accurate. If we treated every human being as an immortal soul that God has brought into the world, what would that do? We certainly wouldn't be doing ethnic cleansing. And you see, what the author of the article doesn't get in here is that the truth corrects moral failure. And wherever there are human beings, there is going to be moral failure, inevitably, always. But you have the truth to correct you, to correct me, right? Straighten us up, fly right, here's the world, you know, whatever. But when you abandon the truth, there are no limits to moral failure at all. They can go wherever they want when there is no truth. Can you understand how the gospel sees the world differently than the world sees itself? Do you understand yourselves the, as the bearers of salvation in a world that is slowly self-destructing? I'm not asking you to pick a political party. I'm asking you to pick the gospel. Right? It is more than any one of us deserves ever. Ever. If we want to understand death, you have to understand what life is, okay? And we do not know life in the kingdom of God. We talk about Genesis 1 and 2 like we're great authorities. Nobody was there, you know? I mean, like, we can't even fathom a world of innocence. We're creatures of death. We're all, we're all dying, Right? They say, what is it, up until about 25, you grow, 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 and then you start going, decline, decline, decline. <laughs> well, yeah, I went downhill faster. Yeah, but anyway, they're, they're more important things than life and death, just for the record. Our world doesn't know that, but you should know that, all right? That is so far beyond our imagination, what life waits for us. I don't think we know. But I think that you can draw close to Christ and say, this is worth more than anything else I have anywhere. Let's look at the start of life. Oh, wait a minute, button. There we go. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist and was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Let's return again to the idea of creature. We are so idolized, self-idolized all the time. I'm going to make myself. No, you're not your creature. Get grip. You can't even change the color of your hair. Oh, I can't too. I have a bottle. <laughs> but you can't change, you know, what, what do you change? Can you make, scripture says it very eloquently. Who can add, you know, anything to his height? 
The Lord's numbered the hairs on your head. That's how big our God is. You're a creature. And you became a living creature. There's a biblical scholar that I listen to a lot, and his name is Stephen DeYoung. I listen to his podcast because he knows a lot of, he speaks all these weird languages and he's read all this stuff and I can barely speak English. Okay. And so I am just enthralled with his knowledge of what things are. And he says um, in this, um, one, one of his comments, okay, is that the breath of life, what is the breath of life? When God breathes into the man, the breath of life. Now there's life, the breath of life has gone out and it's in the other animals. It's in the birds, it's in the fish. But it's not the same thing as when God breathes into the nostrils of the man. Do you know in antiquity, when they built an idol, right? They would, um, you know, whether it's Baal or any of them, they would go in and they, when they finally got it all built, they would open up the nostrils and the people would, you know, the builder or the king or the emperor or whatever, the tribal head would breathe into the nostrils of the man, I mean, of the idol and give it life. And in the scriptures, God breathes into the nostrils, not vice versa. And he gives you life. That's so cool, don't you think? I think that's so cool, right? Anyway, when he said about the breath of life, did somebody ask a question? I see a hand wave or somebody's like, okay. What he said about this is that God is the life of the soul, of the soul right? And the soul is the life of the body. How many of you stood at a, at a the side of bed as people die? I mean, most of us have. If you live long enough, that happens. And you stand there. And you know when the soul is departed and the body is death. Right? And God is the life of the soul when he breathes the life into the man that he's created, into the nostrils. God gives life to the soul. And the soul is the life of the body. I want you to hold that thought for a second. Because I'm going to read the next little passage to you just a little bit. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. In Genesis 2:17, God says, this is leading up to this. God says, if you eat it, you will surely die. And I, in all my education, I've never read this before because I don't read Hebrew. But anyway, the literal translation of that, you will surely die is dying, you will die. Dying, you will die, right? When the soul separates from God, right? When you reject the breath of life that comes from God, your body begins to die as well, right? And isn't that the truth when we look around? I'm always fascinated by people who, who are, you know, um, so... Um, opposed i mean so they, they 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 scream and yell say about gun control when there's violence i'm always gonna go i'm kind of thinking we ought to be looking at soul control i don't think you can fix people who are separated from god and have begun to die within themselves in ways that are horrific and christian you stand between those people and the world and we need to find them and we need to love them and breathe into them the breath of life that has been given to us by our God as well. That is how you will change the nation. That is how you change people who are doing mass murder. People have owned guns forever. Some people use them badly. Some people use them well. I don't know that as an 18-year-old needs a gun. I'm not, I'm not getting into gun control. That's not the problem. The problem in the guns, the problem is that we, have, we don't even acknowledge the soul. And then we wonder how kids could go out and shoot people. 
Have you not told them that nothing is valuable? That life has no meaning? Have we not taught them that they are insignificant? Do you ever see girls go out and shoot a bunch of people? No, because they're princesses. But little boys are not. We don't need boys anymore. What did you think they were going to do when you said we don't want you? You know, I think it's heart rendering. I think it's a heartbreaking. It's a tragedy beyond description. But the problem in the guns is the absence of the soul. When's the last time you saw somebody on ABC News go, you know what's the problem? That boy needs a soul correction. He needs his soul to be illumined so that he is alive again. No, no, I'm not going to say that. Let's get him medicated. What do you think? I'm for medication. That's a stopgap measure to the absence of the soul. You hear what I'm saying? Christian, you need to see the world entirely different. When you read this article, when you hear news reports, when you hear, you know, what would Jesus say? He's come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He'll look at the boy and say, go and sin no more. You know? And I think he'd look at us and he'd say, you know, there's one thing you lack. You've done everything right. There's one thing you lack. And only each of us can only name one thing we lack. I don't know what it is, but he names it the rich young ruler because that man valued his riches. What is the one thing you value more than God? What's your idol? Because he said, one thing you lack, you need to sacrifice that right on up. And that, oh, 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 it's kind of like awful. Sacrificing what you like the best, your idols. I don't have any idols. I don't worship Baal. Oh, you wouldn't believe what all we worship. It's amazing. We worship knowledge in horrible ways. God is the life of the soul, and the soul is the life of the body. You will surely die. Dying, you will die. We start dying as soon as we separate from God. Look at our nation now. Isn't it dying? It's shattering into tons of pieces in every which direction. Isn't that happening? Mm -hmm. All right. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take him. I am right-handed. I am very unhappy. Very, very unhappy. I can't get it apart. It's got to get better between now and next week. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And this is what I want you to understand above all else. When we talk about life and we talk about death, that death is an act of grace. It is a gift to us so that we do not live sinfully, diseased, in the midst of evil, unable to be redeemed for all time. We only look at it and say, how could God have let this happen? Death is part of this, is, is part of this whole, I want to say, brokenness of our world. And God has fixed the problem of death. 
But death itself is a gift. You do not have to live in pain forever. You do not have to live with sin forever. You do not have to live with evil forever. You do not have to, con- you know, you do not have to continue in the midst of, you know, heartrending hopelessness forever. You will one day leave and be born anew, fully anew and alive. And we never acknowledge that in our society. Think of the lengths that people go to to stay alive. You know, I am, um, my mother was having a procedure, I don't, know, I don't know, five years ago, four years ago, something like that. And um, I was, I was there with her and I, and, and it's off. Anyway, let me just say, if you have a child that's a pastor, they're not your pastor. Okay. They're, they're your child. But anyway, so I was standing there and she said, I'm not worried. And I said, okay. And uh, she's, yeah. And uh, she said, when I, I go to sleep and I wake up. I see Jesus, I see you. It's okay. That's how you want to live your life. I thought that was like this incredible illustration. She's like, I see you, I see Jesus. It's okay. You want to live your life that way. This is precious. Life is a gift. Enjoy it. Live it to the fullest. Live it in a way that you take as many people with you to the throne of Christ as you possibly can. But realize this is passing and that is a gift. I want you to know I got more sore joints than Carter's got little liver pills. And I am so glad that they're going to one day not hurt. Anybody else hurt? <laughs> I fell this week. And by last night, I was so irritated because every part of my body hurt. What's wrong? Well, not really anything. They're all just kind of, you know, there's not really anything except for that, like a broken wrist thing. There's not really anything wrong. I hurt all over. I'm just grumpy and whiny and I just, you can't make me happy. No, no, happy. Because I hurt. All right. But that's how we are. One day it will never hurt. You're going to be able to stand up and your knees are not going to creak anymore. Think about it. There's there's positives here, y'all. And then you're going to see Christ face to face, the longing of your heart. And you're not going to sit on a cloud with laying angel wings. You're going to be the image of God fully alive. And you're going to stand there in glory in ways that you never imagined possible. Why would you switch that out to create your own gospel? You can get up and live and say, I'm coming, Lord, and I'm bringing as many with me as I can go. And then you're going to stand there glorified in ways that you don't deserve or merit at all. But because he loves you, he's given it to you fully and wholly. There are more important things than life and death in this world. Okay? Christians should know that and they should live that. The urgencies of today are not truly urgent at all from an eternal or immortal perspective. It is supremely important for you to hold on to your faith, you know, as you go forward. I think the time is coming when there will be persecution of Christians. I think it's already occurring in some ways. And I'm talking about the United States. I'm not talking about in other countries. People who can't get jobs or who can't, you know, um, advance or whatever. I probably meant to skip that. But anyway, the last thing to be destroyed is death. Christ destroyed death on the cross. Your death is just a passing. And the closer you get to that passing, the thinner the veil should be. You should be able to touch heaven from this side. I have watched so many people, many pastors, I mean, every pastor does, right? Been there so many times and watched the veil become thinner and thinner and thinner for the person who's passing, where they are seeing loved ones and they are approaching and they are excited and they are alive, right? 
Now then, this is a martyr in the Soviet Russia. And he was writing a letter to his son, I believe. Anyway, he said, only faith that all does not end with this earthly existence gives us power not to chain ourselves to this earthly life by all means and for its sake to come into all manner of baseness, degradation, and humiliation. Only man of deep and sincere faith can be truly free. Why don't you listen to it? Only man of deep and sincere faith can be truly free. Dependence on the Lord God is the only dependence that does not degrade a man nor turn him into a pitiful servant, but on the contrary, it exalts him. Some years ago, I was in a seminar and I studied Patrick Deneen. I had to give a book report on him. And he is a um, Roman Catholic scholar. I think he's Roman Catholic, but anyway, he's at Notre Dame. And um, he talked about dependency, the notion that we are free and should be liberated from all restraints, which is a basic tenet of you know, um, enlightenment, you know, modernity, whatever. And we should be free of constraints, right? This is, this is the whole of Western culture, you guys. I'm telling you. And he's talking about it. He goes, not one human being has ever been born independent, has ever lived, a, ever taken a breath, independent. Somebody, you know, no one has ever done that. To presume to build an entire civilization on the notion that we're each independent is to live a lie. So your question is, you can depend on the world around you. You can depend on Jesus. And I really recommend Jesus. He hadn't failed me yet. But I failed him awful lot. And he never gives up. So that's what I recommend to you. That you would not give him up. Don't trade him for some ease that you might have right now. Because it will never match what he's got to offer you. Or what he's going to give. And we live in a culture that's just got completely imploding. You can't be a cat, honey. You can't. No. Not going to allow that. But you can be the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. Let us live accordingly. Death. Death is not, um, death is not of God, but it's a grace that we have it so that you're not stuck here forever. Do you have any comments or questions? I know I went over, I'm sure. Did you take down the clock so I don't have to look at it and feel bad? Oh, there it is. Wow, sorry. I'm done. I do have a comment on the how we get all this stuff out about Christian nationalism. Tribalism came up. And I remember something about tribalism recently. Well, I don't remember what it was. Well, tribalism is the notion that we all belong to people like ourselves, and it really is a—it's really originated out of like um, critical race theory, so that your tribe is your—and it's not just critical race theory, but in general, it comes from that whole idea that you're—that you are a—I'm um, gonna say your tribe would be white women, all right, that are that live in middle class, upper middle class, you know, suburbs, suburban white women, okay, um, and then you'd have tribes that are made up of you know, all, all black individuals or all, you know, LGBT individuals or all whatever, you know, there. So, I mean, a tribe is people who are like you. That's your tribe. Okay. And so we talk about that a lot. I don't really like that language because Christianity is not a tribe. They can label it a tribe, but they're wrong. Christianity has existed through centuries. 
And critical race theory is nothing but Marxism. So. Well, sure. Why not like America? I like America. I like what it was. I'm not opposed to America at all. Greatest nation ever. But we've also become the greediest nation ever. Look at it. Look at what we look at what we think we have to have. I was reading. Um, and, and yeah, I'm gone way over. I'm sorry. Please, please feel free to leave. I'm sorry. But anyway, um, I was reading um an article recently, and and I don't know if y'all know Thomas Sowell, but he is like one of my all-time heroes. And um, he was talking about um, you know, the population we're overpopulated. The world's overpopulated. And so I looked up that information because I'm thinking, how could God create too many people for the world? Just as a question, right? So I looked it up. And this guy explained, he's from the University of Texas at Austin, some article. He's explaining, of course, that it is way overpopulated. Now, Thomas Sowell's statistics were pre-2000. So let's say there are a billion less people. But he said, if you take the average size home with an average number of bedrooms, with an average lot, which I guess would be like, I don't know, six or 7,000 square feet for the lot, you know, 2,000 square feet for the house. That you could put a family of four and, and or whatever people in there, everybody. He said, and you can put the entire population of the world in the state of Texas. Y'all know that? Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If there's anybody who knows how to calculate stuff, it's Thomas Sowell, just for the record. But anyway, um, yeah, interesting, is it not? But when I read the guy from UT Austin, right? He was like, well, but you have to have shopping malls and you have to have this many square feet and you've got to be able to have, you know, these kind of entertainment complexes. You have to have these kind. So we'll put those in Louisiana, okay? My point to you remains that we have these ideas that come forth that make no sense at all. And they're based on nothing, all right? Yes, you can be a patriot, but we're, we've turned it, this, this guy understands life to mean having a big house and no bedroom. I think the greatest thing that my parents ever did was force me to live with my sister. Ah. <laughs> you know, Christian nationalism is something people have thought up. It's a name that they are attributing to, um, an, to an ideology they don't want. Okay, America was a Christian nation founded on Judeo-Christian values, specifically Christian values, all right? You can't recover that unless you recover Christianity. But I think it's a great nation. And you know what? The thing that bothers me about that, about and it like less mis misogyny or whatever, the thing that bothers me the most about all of that, okay, is that if you look at the alternative, it's it's horrific. Well, they are saying it though. If, if, unless unless they unless you're educated. What did I just teach you about the world population? Okay. And teaching young children is very hard to do. Teaching teenagers is very hard to do because they know everything. It's all based on their feelings. They know everything. I knew everything too, but at least, you know. Anyway, at 18, we're given to being superior. But my point to you is that the only way to create a future would be to pursue Christ himself and let God unfold it. You know, people say, we're going to have a new election. We're going to get somebody else in here. If we are no more Christ-like when we get a new election or, and get rid of, and we say have borders again, for example, okay, we reinstate borders. Let's just pick that, okay? Let's say we do that. 
if you're not more Christian, it makes no difference who you elect. The nation will still suffer because it will not be a godly nation and you will not be a godly people. You'll be more comfortable. So, I mean, am I a patriot? Gosh, I hope so. I think the Constitution's brilliant. Okay. But even nations pass. Kingdom of God's forever. Anything else? Thank you. Sorry, I went so long.